This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Common Practice, a monthly podcast about the things people do. Things to do with creativity, collaboration, cultural democracy, and the commons. Hello and welcome to Common Practice. Uh, I'm Owen Kelly and I'm here with Sophie Hope and we're going to be talking with Stephen Hadley about his new book, Audience Development and Cultural Policy, published by Palgrave Macmillan. So Stephen, I've, I've had a chance and I think Sophie's had a chance to actually read the book. So could you just start off by telling us uh, why you wrote it? Ooh. When I was doing the interviews for this book, one of the people I interviewed, who I won't name because all the interviewees are anonymous in the book, um, said to me that the interview was like therapy, but much cheaper. <laughs> and that and that made me realise in one of those kind of reflexive moments, that because I used to work in audience development. I ran the um, National Audience Development Agency in Northern Ireland for seven years uh, before going into academia. And a lot of the processes and changes that took place in that time um, in the audience development wars, um, as we remember them, um, kind of really stayed with me in terms of a small group of people trying to make a fundamental shift in the way that the subsidised cultural sector worked and trying to move the focus from being 99% on production and 1% on consumption to something like 95 5%, which it probably is now. Um, so part of the rationale for me, way outside of any academic impetus, was kind of, without wishing to sound grandiose, was to do justice to all of those people who worked in that. Um, some of whom, you know, uh, retired now and had worked in the cultural sector for 50 years. Um, that's a long time to be, you know, trying to do uh, a, a piece of work, if you like. So that was part of it. The other part of it was, of course, it had been such a big part of my life. Um, and it was something that I felt just needed to be put on the record. Audience development sits in what academics call grey literature, mostly, um, written by the sector. And I, I spent an awful lot of my time doing my PhD in a really interesting dynamic of a conversation where I would say oh but everybody knows that and my supervisors would say no no it's not in the literature so nobody knows it and I would be like but who cares about the literature everybody knows that Um, and so it it was a really interesting lesson for me of the fact that academics who teach arts management and cultural policy often existed a kind of different I guess uh, what I've started to call a different epistemic universe from people who work in the sector. Um, And so it was a kind of attempt to build that bridge, I think, between those two different worlds. Um, You can tell me whether or not I feel successful or not. Okay, well, you you make a very interesting argument. And I was just talking to Sophie before, uh, before you arrived. And I was saying to Sophie that I'm not quite clear how the argument ends. Which is to say, I have read the end of the book. In fact, I've read the end of the book more than once because I couldn't tell at the end whether you just threw your hands up in the air and said, fuh, the hell was <laughs> or whether there was a point that I'd, I'd perhaps missed. Let me explain because I, I think the listeners won't necessarily know what the argument is. But my understanding of the argument, and feel free to correct me, is that audience development as a set of ideas, as a practice, follows on from arts management as a practice. And, sorry, arts marketing as a practice. And both of them are responses to the Arts Council's decision that we needed quantitative information and that the art should be understood in a market-oriented way. 
And you describe it, it, or your interviewees describe, ways in which the arts sector pushed back against the idea that it should be, it was marketing product and that people should be running checks on who's buying what. So one of the things I noticed was that you tell a story which sounded strangely familiar to me because some of the interviewees talk about the fact that nobody's really clear what uh, audience development means. And the Arts Council sort of know what it means, but they don't really tell people. And so it's not quite clear what this thing is, and it's very amorphous or very difficult to grasp. And that took me straight back to not the community arts movement, but to the way the Arts Council refused during the 80s any attempts to define community arts. It was always preceded by some, in your, in the terms of some of your interviewees, weasel words, like community arts is a very difficult thing to describe in any detail. We don't want to pin it down. Uh, it takes many forms. And that, thus it would go on to be whatever people wanted it to be at that point and of course in the end what people wanted it to be was something community artists didn't want it to be so am i right do you think that this this tradition at the arts council of keeping everything deliberately vague so that nobody's quite certain where they stand it continues (laughs) ah well that's a big question isn't it um I, I don't know. I'm not. Uh, there are other elements to this in terms of. I'll answer that in two parts. There's other elements to this in terms of the historical narrative. Um, one of those is, of course, is the kind of introduction of what we might, for want of a better shorthand, call the neoliberal kind of agenda that came in with Thatcher and Reagan, which really was an attempt in that great rolling back of the state that also affected the arts sector and it differentiated the UK cultural sector from its Western European counterparts who were still predominantly funded to, you know, within 100% of their costs, as opposed to we now have this model where we're focused on earned income, uh, which, of course, has devastated the sector in COVID because that model uh, is is a disaster in an environment where you can't generate ticket sales, for example. Um, so arts, I think arts marketing came in in a very practical sense to fill that uh, funding gap, if you like, where the ambiguity comes in, and I, I specifically have a section in the book where I call this functional ambiguity because it's not just ambiguity in the sense of, oh, what is it? Let's have a debate with some flip charts and post it notes. And I have sat in many of those, I have to tell you, over the years. Um, but it, it, it's fascinating the way that the ambiguity enables the term to mean different things to different people in a way that then advances the agenda. Um, and you could perhaps look at community arts as, as having had that experience perhaps in the opposite direction, in that it didn't advance the agenda, but with the same ambiguity in it. Um, I mean, to bring that up to the present day, of course, we have the Arts Council's Let's Create strategy, which is redolent with functional ambiguity, depending on how one wants to look at it. Um, I would be slightly hesitant to ascribe agency to that, though. Um, I'm hesitant to suggest it's in some way Machiavellian or deliberate. Um, And part of the reason for that is that I've been doing a number of interviews with senior people in Arts Council England recently about cultural development cultural democracy and and let's create um as a kind of way of following on some of the ideas in the book um and i think one of the things you see with arts council not just arts council england but any kind of arms length or non-departmental public body um is that there is a loss of corporate knowledge and that last loss of corporate knowledge and a failure to know both the organisation's own history, but also that history of cultural policy, um, is part of the problem. Because we all know the cultural sector is uh, is supremely guilty of reinventing the wheel 
um, in numerous instances. And it's also fascinating to see now, of course, and to see that in the book, that when you get to the age that, that I am, I don't want to speak for your good selves, but when you get to the age that I am, you start to see a new generation of people coming up discovering the same problems that you've discovered, thinking that they've discovered them anew, and then being completely distraught, discovering that actually the, <laughs> these battles have been fought for decades. Um, and what's interesting, I think, with the Arts Council is that there was a real... I say this with some authority, because in January of 2019, I was invited to give a talk to the, to the management team of the Arts Council about cultural democracy and cultural policy and audience development. Um, and it was quite clear that there wasn't a knowledge of the historical narratives of these things. Now, and again, to be fair to those staff, some of whom I would, I would count as friends and I think very intelligent uh, people, it's not, and it's not in the job description that you have to have a PhD in cultural policy history when you work at the Arts Council. So it's not necessarily a failing on their part, but it's, 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 we're at a point now, you see, particularly in England, where these things, arts management and arts marketing and audience development and cultural policy, have a history. That's a sort of relatively new phenomenon. It's not like looking at, you know, war or, you know, building churches and going, oh, we've only been doing this for 30 years. So I think there's a, there's a lack of recognition of the fact that these things now have history and narratives and there is an intellectual history of these ideas. Um, and concomitant to that is, is, is uh, a lack of understanding or knowledge of those histories. Can I interrupt you there for a second, Stephen? Because I think one of the things I'd like to point out to anybody listening to this is that the book is about more than audience development, which is to say it is not a niche book that simply looks at the details of how one might develop audiences or whatever. It, it starts with the idea of audience development and then discusses how this works, could work, or in some rare, rare cases can work at the moment to uh, advance ideas of democracy and cultural democracy. Now, in doing that, you talk about two different ways in which people approach the idea of state bodies controlling cultural agendas or directing cultural agendas. One is the art lover and the other is the social justice lover. Could you just briefly describe the two different uh, groups? Yeah, I mean the the two traditions. It's it's a the the model of traditions and dilemmas that they use in the book is a political science model that's been used elsewhere. Um, and the reason that came about is when I first started the book, um, being the terribly bad academic researcher that I am, I went into it with preconceptions about what I was going to find. Um, <laughs> And one of the things I thought I was going to find was that people who worked in audience development believed in this model of the democratisation of culture and would see themselves as, you know, the foot soldiers of the democratisation of culture. And that was how they would conceive of their work and how they would have understood it. And it was to my quite considerable surprise to discover that a significant number of them didn't hold those beliefs um, and in fact were very much situated in the field of, of cultural democracy even though many of them didn't know that term um, and so I wanted to kind of develop both a model but also a shorthand way so there is a table in the book which attempts to just kind of put all of this information into one one, one handy one handy powerpoint slide um, and Though that was an attempt to try and bring together both the intellectual histories, the histories of ideas that inform all of these things, you know, going back, yeah, I guess, way beyond uh, both the 21st and the 20th century. Um, because one of the great, one of the 
places that I came to in writing the book is that people who work in arts management and cultural policy are enacting intellectual traditions and ideas that go back centuries and most of the time they don't realise that's what they're doing. Um, and a lot of the great issues and conundrums, if you like, um, I should put that in inverted commas, with the kind of fake, false issues and conundrums that arise are because people are attempting to kind of operationalise complex intellectual ideas in organisational contexts that don't necessarily make sense or allow for them. Um, and the book, the research really pivoted when it became apparent that a number of people who had created and invented this thing called audience development um, actually held views that were counter to that democratisation of culture model. And that necessitated the need to articulate these two traditions. So on the one hand, the, the, to briefly answer, to actually answer your question, um, the arts lover tradition is the stereotypical democratisation of culture model, which takes the idea of the high arts um, and seeks to bring it to more people um, in the kind of the spread and grow uh, roses for everyone model uh, of the Arts Council. And there is there, there are concomitant beliefs there around the artist with a capital A and art with a capital A. And I should open the book now and look at the handy chart so I can uh, remember it in more detail. Um, but what I think what's interesting in that as well is that that history of ideas then infuses how you think about the experience of art and the reception of art. And it results in these palaces of culture where we sit in hushed silence, stifling our coughs because of the aura of the artist and these Kantian notions of artistic reception and so on. So it's very still steeped in that modernist tradition. Whereas, of course, the social justice tradition is much more about cultural democracy um, and I tried to put in kind of obvious but blunt ways of doing this so that in the in the arts of a tradition, for example, art is always art, whereas in the social justice tradition it may or may not be art. And the reference Duchamp and War, uh, Warhol there, um, there are religious connotations such as around sacred art and Benjamin's idea of the aura in one tradition um, the social justice tradition is, is, however, largely secular. Um, and the way that these things play out, they play out in terms of how you evaluate artistic experience, for example. They play out in a whole range of kind of uh, managerialist kind of output and outcome uh, ways as well. And it was an attempt really to kind of show that huge history of ideas being kind of funneled in a very narrow way um, into this very small, subsidised cultural sector. And then people try to navigate that and go, right, what does that actually look like if you run a building and there's ballet in it, you know? Well, one, one thing that you um, talk about tangentially, but don't, don't talk about uh, directly, and of course there's no reason why you should. One of the differences, it seems to me, and, and in some ways the book brought this out, for me at least, very clearly, one of the differences between the art lover tradition and the social justice tradition is that the art lover tradition, using different words at different times, sees the, the possibility of culturelessness. Now, in previous years, it was called uh, cultural deprivation. Let uh, people realise that this had negative connotations, so it's moved on to just being talked about more vaguely. But in the high art democratisation of culture argument there still stands a belief that there are people without culture who need to be helped to have culture. Whereas in the, in the what you're calling the social justice tradition, there is a view that by necessity, as Raymond Williams points out, everybody has cultures to which they belong. The only question at issue is whether those cultures are recognised by people in power as having a legitimacy or whether they are the culture of scoundrels. And so behind all of this is still the, the notion that there is something like culturelessness. And when I was reading through and it became clear that 
both you and a number of the interviewees who were on the art lover side, both of the, both they and you seemed to feel that this was a Sisyphean task they were engaged in. And it reminded me of the of the fifty year war on drugs, where it's never never ending, it's never getting any better, but it's always a case that if we just put a little more effort in and target the right money to the right place, everything will be better. Am I am I correct, you think, in, in my analysis of this? Yes. Um, I mean, I think it's one of the things, one of the key findings for me, I think, in the book was this idea of how long is too long in terms of the democratisation of culture. Like, is it possible to draw a red line um, and say, well, you've been trying to democratise it for X number of years, it's not worked, time to give up, try something new. Um it was really fascinating, actually, because I was at, when I, right in the foothills of writing this book, and I was at an event, and the, I think it was the Deputy Chief Executive of the Arts Council, probably misremembered the title. Um, and I, I, she was deeply uh, displeased by the fact that I'd raised this question of the fact that we'd had an Arts Council for 70 years, and it didn't seem to have made great strides in terms of democratising culture in terms of the audience base uh, at that point there, there were a whole other issues around uh, race and gender and so on but uh, just in terms of the audience base and she, she turned around and she said well we may not have done as well as we'd have liked in the past 70 years but we'll do a lot better in the next 70 years and that was where that idea came from because I was just like, "Whoa, hang on a minute here! Like, how how many how many seventy year chunks do you get at this? You know, it's like." Um, and that was because of the point that I began to realise that that's that was uh, what I I'm not sure whether I explicitly call it this in the book, but like the discursive function of audience development, which is that 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 two point uh, argument, which is. If you need to democratise something, then it's undemocratic from the get-go. And even though that's like something a five-year-old would understand, it's rarely explicitly said in the cultural sector of making that that initial acknowledgement, it's undemocratic. And then secondly is that so as long as you're being seen to democratise it, then its undemocratic nature becomes legitimised. And that's what audience development did. I think that was its discursive function. It enabled people to say, we realise this is terribly undemocratic, but don't worry, we have audience development, we're democratising it, so your argument is now null and void, go away. Um, and, of course, that works for some, some time and has, uh, you know, for some decades, I think. Um, but it still begs the question of how long is too long in this process and that's kind of where I finished the book by saying it's a Sisyphean task because I think when you factor in even if you believe in um and this is a question of belief and not knowledge if you know if you believe in that arts lover tradition and all of those ideas um the, you would still be pragmatic enough to say that it's a never-ending task because of all of the variants that are involved in there from immigration and emigration and data and of course the function of the market in terms of generating culture that you simply can't conceive of, um, you know, in terms of that entry. I mean, I've kind of had parallel arguments about this around, you know, the the fact that the market now produces culture which is of such quality and has such scope and depth of impact. And I wrote something, I used Kendrick Lamar as an example when I wrote this recently, that those old kind of Frankfurt School arguments about how mass culture is valueless and, and denigrates us and lowest common denominator and so on, which were, let's not forget, part of the building blocks of the Arts Council. Those old arguments hold no water whatsoever anymore. Um, so there are various points I think you can come at this. Can I ask Stephen as well, um, just following on from that, it's... Um, it's uh, the going back to that Sisyphean task and I'm so interested in how over my kind of educational experience it was quite late in the day in the um post post MA like into working in the arts for about five years or so that I came across this term cultural democracy 
And I'm and of course now, and you write about this as well. You've written a lot about this that that cultural democracy is more in vogue now, and even the arts councils, uh, you know, using the term. Um, that you know, that why why was it sort of abandoned or or not like even um, known? I mean, I'm talking about my own experience, but I went through an arts education, and it was sort of just never even. I never came across this term. Um, so the um, the histories, like you say, of those movements and those actions were so buried <laughs> for so, for quite a while. And of course, the dominant narrative around the democratization of culture, um, which I I sort of understand audience development, like you're saying, to have to have sort of come out of. Um, has has sort of led the way and even though that within that you have these like social justice um, aligned folk who are kind of like undercover <laughs> doing the work of audience development democratization of culture but but their soul and their kind of like outlook is more cultural democracy um but as I have understood cultural democracy and the, 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 the you know numerous conversations I, would, I have had about it over these, this podcast, um, is that it's still quite threatening. Like the, 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 the it threatens the pillars and the institutions of um, of the arts industry that we're you know we're teaching about, we're employed by that you know almost relies on that narrative of democratization of culture and that. Um, Sisyphean task of audience development <laughs> um, to keep it or keep that status quo, which is what you what you talk about in the book. And I think it's it, there may be sort of uh, a nod to and a, and a, a kind of increasing interest in cultural democracy. But it's it if it's if we sort of follow it through and actually do the work, it means like you say, sort of artists and art um, led programming for example dis- being dismantled and most institutions can't can't do that because it means they'll do themselves out of a job <laughs> so how what what I just think it's so important all those issues you're raising and those connections you're making but what as you know I teach in an arts management program and most of my students would come from that arts lover tradition I guess when they apply and we we, we do a lot of work to to unpack that and bring in these different ways of sort of understanding um arts and do try and do some of that history work but you know this is a elite if you like of people who've managed to pursue further you know higher education into postgraduate education um yeah just sort of wondered how you're how you deal with that as well in your teaching and owen as well maybe a question for you you know we're we're it feels like we're constantly battling the dominant um narrative yeah i think there's there's two things in that um the first one is I, in terms of students and in terms of arts managers, I mean, I've been very fortunate to teach my own book um, on the arts management I made this year. So it's been really fascinating to, to get that student response. Uh, a lot of my students at the moment are practitioners in what you might call high art uh, institutions. Um, and I've just I've just written what is would would have been the next chapter of the book. Um, uh, which is going to be a chapter in the Routledge. God, I can't remember what it's called now. The Routledge Companion to Audiences and the Performing Arts. Um, it's kind of like the book has three dilemmas in it, and the, this is kind of like the fourth dilemma, I think, which I'm calling ideological precarity, um, because there is that really interesting moment whereby if you work in let's say you work with an orchestra and you are in the arts lover tradition and you've been brought up. Most most people in that tradition have been brought up in that. It's a very kind of intergenerational uh, process and one of kind of, you know, value transfer and so on. Um, if you've been brought up in that tradition and that's why you have that, um, you know, commitment to the vocation of working in the cultural sector and then your arts council turns around and says, actually, no, we don't believe that anymore. We're going over here now, and we're, now we're about cultural democracy. Um, and they issue a ten-year strategy, which explicitly states, as Let's Create does, that uh, the Arts Council no longer believe that certain art forms have more value than other art forms. 
I mean, that's a huge statement. Let's not forget that. Um, then you end up in this position of what uh, you know, what are called ideological precarity. And we're used to talking about precarity in terms of uh, you know, the labour market and job roles and short term contracts and zero hours and so on. Um, but I do think there's a really interesting point where that ideological ground moves under you and you're suddenly, you know, the article's called Are We the Baddies? Um, and it's from that Mitchell and Webb sketch. I don't know if you've seen it, but they're dressed as Nazi soldiers and they're looking at their uniforms and one of them goes, we the baddies? Um, you know, and it's that moment of like going, oh, right, though this whole high art democratization of culture thing's not happening anymore, is it? But this, you know, you know, my passionate true belief kind of thing. So there's that, which I think is really interesting. So I've just finished writing about that. Um, but you're absolutely right in the institutional context. Um, I mean, let's not forget, God, when was it? Was it 2018 when the Arts Council took a draft of the Let's Create strategy and very conveniently showed it to the chief executives of the major London institutions for them to have a nosy Um and for Simon Mellow at the Arts Council to say to Alex Beard, Chief Executive at the Royal Opera House, but of course the Royal Opera House is as important as creative people and places. Now, again, there, you know, for cultural policy scholar nerds, you know, that's a key moment where you go, can you imagine? It's, it's practically inconceivable that, the you know, the second in command at the Arts Council would have to be reassuring the Chief Executive of the Royal Opera House that, it was still important, even though they were doing this cultural democracy stuff. You know, that tells you that who's worried. Um, but of course, you know, um, you, you don't overthrow a cultural hegemony that has this huge material infrastructure. Um, so I think that I think for me that that's the most interesting question about cultural democracy right now is what happens when it meets the national portfolio list in the Arts Council at a certain economy of scale? Will it, will, do you, in terms of those futures, do you see, I'm sure there's stuff written about this I've not seen yet, but in, in sport, that parallel with how sports is um, funded in, in uh, England, at least, where you have the kind of, um, you know, the elite, the professional sport um, organisation and then the com- community-based um sports organization and how you know there's a, there's a sort of relatively straightforward division obviously there's cro- the idea is that there's cross fertilization that, that, that if you if you fund community sport there is people then potentially could get sort of employed in in those um in those professional sporting careers but um is there a is that a future i mean i'm not saying i would promote, promote that but is that like a version is, is anyone thinking about that in the arts council or are they just just to keep everyone happy <laughs> Um, I I think it's uh, I I under, you know, the, we're edging close to the word ecology here, aren't we? Um, I think it's um, uh, that's a useful analogy, but it, the, what's missing from that is is the intellectual hinterland of the debate, which doesn't necessarily exist in sport. If it does, I'm, I'm blissfully unaware of it. Um, in that. You end up in this position, I kind of used, it's a, it's a clunky shorthand, but the way I talk about it with students is, can you advocate apartheid and multiculturalism simultaneously? Okay. And I use that analogy because everybody knows what those terms mean, but also because they are the embodiment of a complex set of ideas and philosophies and beliefs about race and culture. Um, and... It's not dissimilar to think about the democratization of culture and cultural democracy in that way. And can you can you advocate for both simultaneously? And I suppose my answer would be, well, at an intellectual level, no, you can't, because that's incoherent. But at a practical level, of course you can. And in fact, we have both already, don't we? Because we have creative people in places and we have the Royal Opera House. Um, so there's a difference between a purely intellectual debate and the, then the, the messy reality of life, I guess. But in a sense, that difference or that um, apparent opposition occurs because of the nature of funding, by which I mean funding 
goes towards companies. There are other models of possible funding that would move outside both the art lover and to some extent the social justice traditions. You could, for example, have all funding as top-up funding. You could say the problem is that under capitalism, some activities that we value socially won't be profitable. So therefore, we will top those activities up with the funding required to enable them not to go out of business. And that might be the Royal Opera House. It might be a jazz group. It might be a small publishing house. In that model, there's nothing wrong with the Royal Opera House continuing to exist. And in fact, it becomes a lot clearer because I don't care whether they increase their audience or not. If they have a constituency they address, this is absolutely fine. Just as if a football team has a constituency it addresses or a small publishing house has a constituency addresses, that's fine. The only difficulty arises if in two stages the argument is twisted. The first stage is to say there's only a very small amount of money relative to all these demands, so we have to prioritise it. And the second stage in this sleight of hand occurs when people say, ah, and of course, by any civilised standards, my pleasures are a lot more valuable than your pleasures. So we will drop this support for your performance poetry and your hockey team. And we'll say, given the finite nature of the money, it'll go to the following large institutions. Now, again, I don't even have a problem with that. If that's done honestly, and people say, well, we have decided for political, cultural reasons, let's call it soft power. Let's say that Monocle would refer to these uh, institutions as examples of British soft power. So we've decided to have those. And yes, the Royal Opera House is very important. And so is the Festival Hall. And we're keeping those under any circumstances because they're part of British soft power. Well, again, I can I can follow that argument. It's an honest argument. And then you, it places everything on on the table and says, this is this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. The problem, though, which is hidden in the art lover tradition, is what I was referring to earlier as the sleight of hand, to say that everybody can have everything they want, providing it's of value. And by the way, we're defining of value, and you're not. But, Owen, that is, you've basically described the funding system in England. Because <laughs> that is what happens, isn't it? Like, I guess, you know, that there is that some somewhere, you know, due to the history of how things have been set up, there is the government have decided that... Well, that history started after the, sec- after the Second World War, yes. That's... But I guess that, you know, therein the lies the, 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 the rub is the, is the value question, isn't it, as always, like who, who decides and how transparent or de- democratic of that. Uh, I was that? trying to raise a separate issue, or di- a slightly different issue, which is I think that the cultural democracy versus democratisation of culture argument either doesn't or shouldn't hinge upon funding artists differently? Are there different approaches to maintaining a vibrant culture or cultures that can stay afloat inside capitalism? And that might not mean funding artists. It might mean, as I said, funding distribution or production, not creation. And that, that those arguments it seem to me to, to not be addressed. This is where, uh, when in in the book on page two hundred and seven, one of your interviews interviewees says, "I think that the art establishment as we know it is incapable of changing itself from within. It doesn't want to change itself within." Turkey's voting for Christmas. And then it, then it goes on to say, I do not foresee any point in the future when any British government will ever really take a firm hand to the likes of the Royal Opera House or the RSC. And I think that's all true. But the problem is that quite often the alternative view is proposed in a sense of we could give different people the same money to produce different things. And I'm saying I don't regard that as 
radical. I regard that as a kind of reformist position. You know, we could we could stop funding Baroque music and start funding muralists. Yes, but we, we that's not addressing the real issue, which is how culture is produced in the twenty first century. And whenever we find culture that is vibrant and unofficial, it's ignored. Not just in the sense that uh, Kendrick Lamar was ignored or is ignored in these cultural discussions. But it's ignored in the sense that it's rendered invisible. It's not just ignored, it's rendered invisible. And it's rendered invisible because we don't look at how, what does Kendrick Lamar need to make culture? If he doesn't need anything, why doesn't he need anything? I guess that also links to the discussions we've had and the movement for cultural democracy was having as well. Um, the, the recent, more recent movement was around the connections to universal basic income, that these are, you know, these questions of cultural democracy, and I think, Stephen, you've pointed to this as well, that, you, you know, you can't necessarily have, or can you have, cult, really roll out or, or fully embrace cultural democracy without some of these kind of more socialist policies and um, economic, you know, policies in place? And Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with what I would say, but I... I mean, I do. I agree with. I think you were describing the, the funding model of the English sector for a long time. Now it's like, where's he going with this? Um, <laughs> um, but as I agree, it it uh, it does. It, it's easy to see the absurdity of the current model. You know, you, uh, you uh, there's a really brilliant Michelin-starred restaurant called Ox in Belfast, which is also quite reasonably priced. I highly recommend it if you're ever in the city. Um, I was sat in there recently celebrating my birthday with my wife. I'm thinking, hmm, these guys don't get funding, do they? They're excellent. You know, they're kind of the, the food equivalent of the Royal Opera House or the Royal Ballet or so on, um, you know, huge amount of training and expertise and skill and knowledge and, you know, the various sort of elements of the analogy. Um, they don't get funding. Um, and it's, it's uh, the, the model that we have is really a kind of outdated curio, isn't it, from a kind of bygone era. Um, but it's one of those instances of a self-perpetuating kind of hegemony or hegemony or however one wants to pronounce that word. Um, and one of the reasons, I think, you know, to go back to that quote about nobody's going to do away with the Royal Opera House is because it's more trouble than it's worth. You know, I mean, once you have though, that, both the material manifestation of power that, that you have in all of those lovely buildings, um, but also the vested interest and the political connections, you're not going to do it. Why would you bother? Why would you go to all that effort for a battle you're probably not even going to win that's just going to be bad press for you as a politician or a funder? Um, so there's a whole convergence of interests. And I mean, I think uh, you know, what's fascinating about these debates is that we inevitably start yo-yoing between the purely theoretical and the necessarily practical in terms of this. And it's not actually possible to kind of uh, separate these things out. But you know, to pick up on that idea of how culture is produced in the 21st century and to go back to Kendrick Lamar again, um, you know, he won a Pulitzer Prize. He's not been ignored, you know. He was referenced by Obama. You know, I mean, I think uh, Kendrick Lamar is a really brilliant example because... As I kind of alluded to before, he does all the things that subsidised culture claims it will do, but often doesn't, and does them better at vastly greater scale for no subsidy. And I think once you've got uh, one of the things that the cultural sector, the subsidised cultural sector really hasn't reckoned with, which I can't, you know, you've said already, is how culture is produced in the 21st century, because you know, the bulk of the innovation occurs in the market. The bulk of the socially engaged, racially engaged, you know, pick any you know, intersectional social justice element you want, it's all happening in the market. It's not happening in the subsidised cultural sector. Um, you know, and uh, you can do a very straightforward thought exercise whereby if you if you said, right, 
These are the things the Arts Council claims it wants to achieve in its new strategy. If we were to design a model based on all the evidence we have now to achieve those things, would we create the arts sector we have? And not in a million years is the answer yes. <laughs> so, so we do have something that's still really unfit for purpose in many ways. Um, and the thing that's not in the book, it's sort of in the book like uh, on the fringes, is how there's another term which has this discursive function that I talked about the audience development has, and that's excellence. Because excellence as a discursive function pretty much enables you to do whatever you like. Uh, with public subsidy because so long as you can claim it's excellent or more accurately striving for excellence um, then that starts to legitimate all kinds of cultural activities and funding of cultural activities which otherwise would just be a nonsense um, it's partly why there's this schizophrenia you know, we had the McMaster report in whatever that was, 98 or something, was it, going, no, 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 we must go back to excellence. Um, you know, and now we have Let's Create going, there's no such thing as excellence because nothing has more value than anything else. We must do, you know. Um, it is like a madman having a conversation with himself in a building in London, isn't it? So. I, I wonder as well. <laughs> Sorry, Arts Council. <laughs> can, I, can I just, I know we, we're kind of nearing the end a bit, but the... Um, the part of the podcast I mean um but the when you were saying the bulk of innovation um is in the market rather than the subsidized sector I guess I just wanted to unpack that a bit because in the some of the issues um that are coming up are around who has the um access to like the time and space for production and um the that's not necessarily addressed through the market it, I presume. I mean, I'm I'm thinking um, also of that of a tr perhaps it's another tr tradition, but the idea that cultural production is. is I mean, I'm from a visual arts background, so maybe it's a bit different in the performing arts. But you don't necessarily always um, embark on something in order for it to be successful or innovative or make mean something to, to to the market you know it's not something that you're creating in a way that's where you know you again you go back to the idea of subsidy is that for some reason um i still hold on to the kind of idea that um i think it's important to, to do stuff that nobody wants and um and I, that's why i'm in education that's you know why i'm in the arts i suppose or have a kind of have a relationship with the arts is because I like the idea of producing and making and doing um, things that nobody's asked me to or nobody wants me to. Um, there's another question, layer of questions there as well. Well, who's paying for that, Sophie? <laughs> uh, do you expect the taxpayer to be pay paying for you to, to have these ideas and follow through on them? Um, so I'm wondering, you know, and again, this this uh, this term innovation is is hugely problematic. It has kind of connotations and value judgments all around it. So. I'm aware that some of those ideals that I've described there come from a history of, of history of art as well um, and a whole load of baggage. But um, but it's something I just wanted to put on the table as well in terms of that statement or just. But this yeah, is why I, I tie this back to what uh, Steve was talking about, about Kendrick Lamar, where I didn't mean he was ignored completely. I meant as an example of success, he's deliberately removed from the room when we talk about subsidised culture. Nobody ever says, let's go and look at Kendrick Lamar and find out how he's successful. And this has always been the case 50 years ago, or 40 years ago, 50 years ago, whenever it was, when Bob Marley became globally famous. What happened was there was a response. I can remember it. I can remember it happening in Brixton, where I was at the time. There was a response that we must start community music workshops so people have a chance to learn the bass guitar and the guitar. And I thought to myself, well, where the hell do you think Bob Marley learnt it? Should we go and take experience from the community music workshops that are run in Kingston? And see how they're... The answer is they're not. They were living in poverty and they learnt this stuff the way... Because they wanted to. They didn't do it because people wanted it. They didn't do it because there was subsidy available. 
And then afterwards, the response was, well, you know, uh, working class people won't be able to afford to make music, so we'd better start community music workshops for them so they can make music like Bob Marley. And I, I remember this because they were actually starting reggae classes. And I, I looked at this and I thought to myself, well, you've missed the point. Just completely missed the point. Yeah, and you see that same basic error replicating across the creative industries the whole time. Um, I can't believe we've got 50 minutes since this interview before stood on the landmine of the word innovation. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, that because the, you can't, I, I believe, you can't artificially replicate those processes of creativity, which is what so much of the creative industry seems to be. It's like, oh, look at those poor working class black kids that have done something that's now phenomenally successful. How can we replicate that and make money off it? Um, and it's like, well, you can't artificially replicate things. Um, you can you can do it to some extent, but it won't ever work in the way that you want it to work, which is how it organically worked in the first place without your interference. Um, but I think, I mean, do it, as I always say to my students before we start talking about any of this, is it's practically impossible to develop arguments around uh, the arts sector and cultural policy because it's so heterogeneous now that somebody's always got an example of how you're wrong <laughs> because, there's, because it is, you know, it's vast now globally, of course, because our, our horizons have expanded so much as well. Um, but I would, I think part of this key resource and a lot of what you were saying there, Rowan, is, is this great issue of our time, um, which is that the, the resource isn't guitars or workshops, it's time itself. And, you know, when, uh, when Kane's driving rationale, I think, you know, along with all of his um, now very outdated ideas, but his driving rationale was, of course, an economic one, which was that he was convinced with the enactment of his own economic models, obviously, that we would all be working a three-day week now at most. And his key drive, it's, in, it's there in all those inaugural speeches, was, you know, we must provide for the creative leisure time of the populace because we live in this great uh, Western economy um, and nobody's going to be working full-time anymore. And what will the people do? And we must provide them with cultural and leisure activities, which is why when he said, you know, uh, he envisaged this time in the future when the theatre and the gallery would be a part of everybody's lives um it wasn't so much talking about how audience development would work it was the fact that people would have so much free time they'd be looking for things to do um and of course what what is the one resource that nobody has anymore it's time, time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know yeah, yeah. that i think is is a, a really interesting second go podcast we must come back and discuss that <laughs> because i think I think the failure of Keynes to predict this is uh, at the heart of a lot of these arguments. Mm. Shall we stop there and say goodbye to each other? Yes. And then I will uh, come back to you later because I think I really would like to take up this idea about time and how that fits into talk about cultural provision. I'd love to do that. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.